livepodcasts.fm. This podcast is a Prime Media Broadcasting production. People are reshaping the mindset of the masses. Africa State of Mind. Welcome to Africa State of Mind. Before we get started, I would like to remind you to please send suggestions of people that you would like to hear us talk to on the podcast. Also, like our Facebook page, Africa State of Mind, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Live Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Also, remember to leave a little bit of a review as it makes it easier for other people to find us as well. On this episode of Africa State of Mind, we spoke to Mimi Kalinda, who's originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda and was raised for the most part in South Africa. She's the group CEO and co-founder of Afri Communications Group. She spoke to us about the importance of Africans owning their own narrative. We are the first custodians and ambassadors of our so-called African brand. Mm. Um, and so we have been telling a negative mm. narrative about the continent long enough. And I think that's important for us to start changing. She also touched on owning our own platforms and pens to write our own stories. Whoever owns the mic owns mm. the message, right? So how do we hope to ever get to a point where we're owning our own stories and telling our own stories and owning our own narrative if we don't own the platforms mm-hmm. through which we tell them? Mimi Kalinda has a contagious, positive and hopeful attitude about Africa. I think one of the things that gives me the most hope is that you hear less and less Africans blaming things like slavery, colonialism, etc. We started to intellectualize that conversation and say this is this happened, these were the outcomes. Mm-hmm. But we're not emotionally attached to that anymore. Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. Mimi Kalinda told us about her upbringing. So I was born in Kinshasa in okay. the DRC yeah. um, uh, of a Congolese father and a Rwandan mother. Oh, so wow. my mom is from Rwanda. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was born there and lived there till I was about six or seven. Yeah. And then my dad um, was a diplomat. Okay. So we ended up traveling. So I, I lived one of those like diplomat children's lives where yeah. you're just about to put your suitcases down, make friends, you know, really get embedded in whatever country you're in. And then yeah. you have to move again. Yeah. So uh, we lived in, in Brussels for a while. Uh, we spent quite a lot of time in Portugal. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was the ambassador of DRC in Portugal at the time. Um, and so that's where I picked up my Portuguese. Which you and speak then, fluently, by Which the way. I do speak fluently. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, yeah, and then came to South Africa in the early 90s. So about 1991. Yeah. We came to South Africa and then South Africa has been home ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. That's like incredible. Yeah. So I just want to do a count of the languages because I have an obsession with people who can speak languages. Mm. I think it's just awesome because it just means that you're able to integrate wherever it is that you go. It's a huge blessing. It really is. Yeah. Especially in my line of work. I just can't imagine not being able to understand, you know, the the main language wherever I, I work and travel. So I speak English. I speak French. I speak Portuguese. I speak Swahili. I speak Lingala and I speak Kinyaranda. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and this is where I feel like, okay, but well that's incredible. But I actually never knew that your mom was Rundi, so yes. that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so I guess and then we can then have the conversation around, you know, the 25th, uh, 25th year um, anniversary of the genocide. genocide and such. Yes, absolutely. So take me back to your first time um, at Channel or how you mm. actually ended up with that job. And I mm. asked that question because. Because there was nothing like that, you know, we everybody at that particular point was looking internationally. And so it was 
it was really new to see a whole lot of these like just amazing, you know, young Africans on TV. So when you first heard about it, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I watched Channel O when it first came out, just yeah. like everybody else. Yeah. And I was astounded that there was anything like yeah. that at all on television. Yeah. Um, you know, we grew up in the times of MTV and yeah. were fascinated by like Carson Daly and all of those guys. And so to have our own was like, yeah. what? This is amazing. Mm. Um, and I've always been a little bit of a, you know, kind of rebel in a way. Yeah. Um, I watched this show, I watched this channel and I was like, there's actually no one really like me on mm. this channel. Mm. Uh, because, you know, the idea of Channel O was it's a pan-African mm. music television channel. Mm. So I was like, well, you know, if you look at Africa... Yes, English is one of the languages, but they also speak French, they speak Portuguese. There's so much diversity in Africa. And I think that's where kind of my, this love for uh, wanting to shape the African narrative came from. Because I was like, well, this is a groundbreaking moment for us, having our own 24-hour music television channel, uh, but it's not representative of mm. what Africa is all about. Yeah. So I literally picked up the phone and I called, and then I ended up speaking to Zandile yeah. Nzalo. Yes. And I was like, so... <laughs> Love what you're doing. It's fantastic. Awesome. But like, who are you speaking to? You're yeah. leaving out like half the continent, if not more. Um, and I'd like to remedy that. Can mm. I come in and audition? Um, and she was like, well, you know, you've got the guts. Mm. Let's see if you've got the talent. Mm. So I went in, auditioned, got the job. And I was so excited to be working side by side at that time with Chris Bongo. Yes. So we presented The Fuse, yes. which was like I the, remember the African show. That was the best that show. show. That was so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I learned so much from that show myself because yeah. I didn't know a lot of the artists that we were talking about and presenting. Mm. So my awareness of the African music scene really grew doing that show. Mm. But essentially, that's how I got the job. Just yeah. kind of like just banging down the door and saying, yeah. I should be on that channel. Yeah. yeah. And what would you say um, to to um, women in general just about the power of actually asking? Because I, I kind of get a sense that to get as far as you have gotten, it hasn't been a case of things being handed to you. You've consistently seemed to have the courage to say, can I, can I, can I give mm -hmm. me the opportunity? Yeah. So what would you say for, for women in general? Cause we have this thing where women don't ask, they kind of sit in the back and they wait to be asked. Yeah. Do you think that that's something that still happens or? I think it still happens a lot. I think that a lot of us are afraid of hearing no. And I don't think it's just a woman thing. I think it's a human being issue. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, the worst that can happen is somebody saying no. Mm. Uh, but I also think that it's being really, uh, uh aware of what your value add is. So, mm. I mean, you're asking, but what are you bringing to the table? So identifying mm. where the gaps and opportunities are and being strategic about yeah. how you ask um, and how you position yourself um, so that, you know, you at least increase the chances of the answer being yes. Mm. Um, I did the same thing at MTV, by the way. Yeah. You, you were know, the first I... African on MTV Europe. Yes. And yeah. I promise you, I absolutely did the same thing that I did wow. on Channel O. I yeah. called MTV up and found out who the producer was. <laughs> For MTV Europe. And I said, so I, I think you are aware that the feed of MTV that you produce actually streams into Africa. So that's what we watch. Yeah. Where are the African faces? Wow. I'm absolutely scandalized yeah. and shocked that you have no Africans on your channel. Yeah. And they were like, 
Well, you've got the guts. Come to London and audition. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Yeah. And m- went over and audition and it went well and I got the job. Yeah. So it's really about identifying mm. what's the opportunity, what's the gap. Mm. And then, you know, just having the courage to put yeah. yourself forward. Sure. Yeah. And then, um, then after MTV, then there was a period where it looked like you were quiet within the continent. But from what I understand, you were, I think you were working or you were being mentored by Spike Lee or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. you worked, um, with Denzel Washington. On some, but anyway, let me let you tell the story. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a very interesting, I yeah. came to a point when I was doing MTV and I literally woke up one morning and I was like, if I have to tell the story of who Britney Spears is dating <laughs> one more time, I literally <laughs> will Excuse not survive. One more time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> I was like, I cannot do that again. Yeah. Um, and I craved um, education. So mm. I'd started doing um, a law degree at WITS, mm-hmm. um, which thankfully I never finished because I never would have been able to practice as a lawyer. Really wasn't my my field. It was your parents. Or my I'm passion. Sure. It was my, my mm-hmm. parents. Um, so when I went to MTV, I kind of left that behind and I never finished my degree. But there was such a craving inside me to go back to school and finish, but mm. to do something I really loved. Mm. So at some point I decided, okay, no more MTV, no more of this. I really want to go back to being a student. So I applied to NYU in New York and I was like, this is the best film school. Mm. I want to go there. And I applied and I got in. And so the time when I was quiet, I was literally a student backpack oh, on I the, like that. Yeah. on the train, going to school mm. and everything. Uh, it was definitely an interesting experience. I think, you know, perhaps that's something that I try and teach my kids is that at some point you have to eat a little bit of humble pie mm. in order to go that one step forward mm. um, to your next level. Mm. Right. And um, because I literally went from MTV, you know, Mimi K, everybody knows who you are to landing in New York with my little backpack and going to school and no one knew who I was, mm. you know. And I was just an ordinary student like everybody else. But it was the most amazing experience um, at NYU. And Spike Lee happened to be one of my professors. Incredible. So that was incredible, obviously. And then um, and then eventually uh, graduated and went to work for 40 Acres and a Mule, his production company. Mm-hmm. Um, he was producing Inside Man at the time with Denzel Washington. Yeah. So worked on that. And I was just really there to absorb and learn. So yeah. that's that's what I was doing when I was kind of quiet (laughs) I like that and I also like what you were saying about sometimes um, having to eat a humble pie to kind of go a step forward and I think that that's something that you see in a lot of people who are I mean for lack of a better word like who achieve greatness Mm. there's always periods in their life when they're they're like okay this is the ceiling now what am I going to do and they reassess and so in that process I just think it's something that that also should be shared a lot more um, these days because I don't think we see it that much. <laughs> no, absolutely. You know, it's like a trampoline. If you're jumping on a trampoline, mm. you have to go down in order to go even higher than mm. you were jumping before. Mm. So at, otherwise you don't go anyway, yeah. right? So that self-criticism, self-reassessment is critical. Yeah. yeah. So then um, then one day, uh, well, not one day, let me say for me, I think it was like towards the end of last year, I just suddenly see start seeing about this PR firm that you're running and I'm just like, this is as much as I thought that it was as much as I was surprised, I wasn't really surprised because I felt as though 
of of all the people that I know, you're one of the people who really understands this continent. Mm. And I think you understand it because you're overly curious yeah. and you really are able to just identify with people immediately. Mm-hmm. So I thought this is a winning formula. But how did you actually end up uh, starting your firm? Mm. So I came back, I think when I left New York... Um, First of all, I needed to come back to the continent yeah. to understand the what continent. What did you miss right? while, when you were away? I missed, I missed everything. Yeah. And I, was, I became such a champion of the African narrative while I was in New York. Yeah. And in fact, my thesis coming out of NYU was called Miseducating the World. And it was basically oh. about looking at how the U.S. news media portrays Africans and what the impact of that is on African immigrants who live in the U.S. Sure. And their self-esteem and living in this place that looks at them through mm. a certain lens. Um, so I, I came back and I did a lot of production. I, I actually left New York to go straight to the DRC and I hadn't been there since I was six or seven. That must have been crazy. It was huge. Because DRC is quite complex. It is so complex <laughs> yeah. uh, on so many levels, yeah. more levels than one. Yeah. But I was doing incredible work with this group of people producing uh, what we called um, behavior change content mm-hmm. um, through soap operas, music, and talking about issues like prevention of HIV and AIDS, violence against women in times of war, etc. I love the work that we did there. And so when I came back to South Africa, eventually, um, I got recruited by a couple of global PR firms. Mm. Um, and it was mainly because of the work that I'd done in content. And they're mm. like, you know, you're doing such amazing work in content. But do you know that actually there's a link between what you're doing in terms of behavior change mm. and PR? Um, and at the time, uh, my employer had a Samsung as a client. Mm. Um, and it was during the African Cup of Nations. And they were like, can you create content? but for PR purposes, as mm. opposed to just content. Um, and so that's where I started. And they were like, they offered me a job and they were like, you know, come and work with us, etc. Got in my foot into the PR space and essentially um, discovered that PR was the ideal place to combine all of my passions. I mm. could still make content, all kinds of content, written, audiovisual, etc., I could, through the work of my clients, uh, push for this, kind of reshaping and reowning of the African narrative that I'm so passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could also mentor uh, people who were coming up in the field. Mm-hmm. They were coming up in the, in the media space uh, in a field where there actually aren't that many Africans playing. Yeah. Um, so, so it just made sense mm-hmm. to then go off on my own and started Africa communications media group. And yeah, we've been around since 2012. And I think that if I'm not mistaken, um, when you decided to start, it started off a message. There was somebody who there was a message that was sent to you or you Mm. were you were talking to somebody on WhatsApp or something. And then Mm. they literally and that's how you actually came up with the idea of starting the firm. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. So my my business partner, Adis Elimayo, he uh, lives in Ethiopia. He's Ethiopian. And while I was working for this global PR firm, uh, he was one of the affiliates Ah, to that to to that firm. And he uh, approached me. Uh, you know, after a while, and he said to me, you know, you're so good. Um, actually, I went on maternity leave. That's what mm. happened. I went on maternity leave and he said to me, uh, we met and he said, you're so good. Um, I really would love it if you didn't go back to work after having the baby. And I said, what do you mean? This is like my whole <laughs> like, I have a baby. I've got bills. <laughs> you know, I've got like, this is like the worst time. Yeah. He's like, I promise you, take a leap of faith with me. Sure. I feel that um, you're the best person to partner with. And together we can create the first Pan-African public 
public relations and communications firm on the continent um, because we're African. And mm. so nobody else should be doing this but us, mm. you know, mm. because nobody understands this continent or has heart for it as much as we do. Mm. Um, and so I didn't go back to work. And so we started the company and here we are. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and what was the beginning of it like? Was it because... I mean, like, was it, were there any times when you were just kind of like, oh my gosh, I should have gone back to work? What was that process? Because now it's really doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, but was it always like this? No, I mean, it's definitely not always like this. And this is something that I talk about quite a lot, actually, this glamorization, if if that's the word to use, of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, I think entrepreneurship is such a buzzword right now, right? Mm-hmm. It's like innovation and everything else like that we over yeah. oversell. <laughs> Um, and this idea that everybody should become an entrepreneur um, and also this idea that you should, you should just jump into it. Um, and to be honest, for me, for the, so for the first three years of starting the business, I also had a full time job. Mm. Um, but okay. I literally uh, doubled the amount of time that I was working. So I started working up at like two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. And I would work on my business between three and seven, mm-hmm. um, take care of my kids, etc. then go to work. Um, I had a job that was flexible, so I was kind of lucky in that regard. And then come back to the business. So I was straddling two different horses at the same mm-hmm. time, but that's what it took to get get the, the business going. Uh, the second thing um, is that the we had so much to proving of ourselves to do because mm. we were African, we were black, we were playing in a in a I'm a woman, obviously. Mm. So you kind of have all the cards against you in terms of the um, the perception that people have of a business person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and we're playing in a space where you had people who had lot, lots of capital, had uh, reputation equity that they've built over years and years in the business. Um, and so for me to walk in a place you know, some big corporate or multinational and say, actually, I understand Africa better and I'd like to do your public relations mm. um, was tough. So mm. it took it took a long time. But as you know, like I'm used yeah. to knocking on doors. Yeah. And <laughs> I know. <laughs> some of us would have been, would have been <laughs> hiding underneath the bed. Like, I um, For you, uh, what do you think is... When we, when we think about the brand equity of Africa, mm. what is the... Should I say the biggest mistake or the biggest challenge we have? And I'll I'll say this by saying this. There was somebody that we had spoken to and they they said that when it comes to telling African stories, we just all we ever do, all we ever see are the negative side of stories. Mm. And even us as Africans, we tend to not tell the good or you know what I mean? And Mm. that's not to say that you must only say the good and not say the bad. But there's never there doesn't ever really seem to be a balanced story about Mm. Africa. It either is or isn't. So Mm. if we look at what's going on with certain leaders in Africa, it's that's all that we'll say. It's so bad. Africa's like this. And then you look at what's going on in America. They have the same problem, mm. but they're able to balance out the narrative of mm. what America is. Yeah. What are your thoughts around that? Um, I think that, I mean, I think that first of all, we don't have a single African narrative, right? Yeah. So when we talk about the African narrative, what are you talking about? I mean, Burkina Faso is so vastly different from Nigeria or South Africa. So mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Um, the second thing is, I mean, you brought up America. Um, America has this thing called the American dream that mm. they've sold to pretty much every, anybody who would listen. Um, and it's stuck. Yeah. And what that tells me is not necessarily that we should have an African dream. Yes, we have a vision as a continent and we have similarities that we should, um, we should certainly uh, play up in terms of the narrative that we tell. Uh, but what it does tell me is that 
people buy into their own narrative. And that I always, I, I, I find really fascinating because the narrative that you tell about yourself, you yourself end up buying into. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so I think that we have actually played a big role in the, the unbalanced, I'm not going to say negative, but unbalanced, mm-hmm. um, narrative of the continent. Um, one, because we're not educated enough. I mean, I could ask, you know, anybody that meets in the street, where's Mali? And like most Africans don't understand, you know, even yeah. the geography you mean, of in, the in, continent. In Mali. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, what? It's like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, you know, um, so we are the first custodians and ambassadors of our so-called African brand. Mm. Um, and so we have been telling a negative mm. narrative about the continent long enough. And I think that's important for us to start changing. But also, let's not fall into kind of this um, uh, this this pit of, of thinking that there aren't positive narratives being told. I mean, I've never seen more, I've never felt more enthusiasm, optimism about mm. African, what it means to be African than right now. Mm. Like, I mean, being born African right now is just such a privilege, the best, yeah. right? So, and I think that there are people telling those stories and I think it's just about amplifying them. Mm. And I think the last point I'll make about that is the, the, the ownership of platforms. As you know, you know, whoever owns the mic owns mm. the message, right? So how do we, hope to ever get to a point where we're owning our own stories and telling our own stories and owning our own narrative if we don't own the platforms through mm-hmm. which we tell them. Um, and I think that more than anything needs to be our first point of call. Okay. Yeah. And then, so, um, because, I mean, when we consider the fact, like what you said, that they we're, we're looking at the whole idea of there being a single African narrative, and you're very right, actually, mm-hmm. it, it's not even possible. Because just by saying that, then we're basically perpetuating the stereotype that Africa is a country, not a continent, you know. But your firm has managed to be able to work across the the continent with multiple clients and effectively. Mm -hmm. So what is the key to being able to do that in a place where, I mean, I've heard people say there's a thousand languages in Africa. I actually think there's more than a thousand. I think there's... I, I think there's much more than that. There's much, much, much more, you know. Um, And also from just within each country every region is so different Mm -hmm. it's just so different in Mm -hmm. general Mm -hmm. so how do you effectively ensure that you're servicing your clients you know well especially because what you do is based on you know speaking to these different um countries for your clients i think so our work is very insights driven um so whether it's ourselves being on the ground or having partners on the ground who help us to mine information and research on the various target audiences mm-hmm. and regions where we work, um, it's an essential part of our model, um, of our business model. So, for example, I mean, I come from the DRC, and I always say, you know, such a huge country that uh, when you look at the east of the DRC, probably more affiliation uh, of that region to Rwanda, Uganda, mm. Burundi, et cetera, et cetera, even in terms of food, in terms of language, yeah. in terms of culture, tradition, yeah. than somebody who lives in Kinshasa, you know? So if you're going to do a campaign and then you have, you know, you have clients who say, okay, well, you know, we've developed a campaign in New York or in Paris or in Hong Kong. Let's copy and paste that campaign into the DRC. And that's kind of where we counsel our clients Mm. and we're able to say well actually first of all that's not going to work secondly 
These are the political nuances of that specific country. This is what you're dealing with from a socioeconomic standpoint. This is what you're dealing with in terms of culture. And this is within even that specific geography, all of the differences and dynamics that you're looking at. How do we then put together a communication strategy that lands with mm-hmm. those specific target audiences and also meets your business objectives? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the that's the essence of what we do at ACG essentially. And I think that's that's a huge uh, differentiating factor for us mm-hmm. is just having that local understanding, mm-hmm. specifically cultural understanding, mm-hmm. and how that then affects the way people receive messaging. Because mm-hmm. really, communications is not just about talking to the people, it's, but then how mm-hmm. do they on the other side receive the message and are able to act on it in yeah. a certain particular way that serves your purpose yeah. right and i think I, what i like in what you were saying is that it's also because with if you're going to do work effectively in the continent it is about the cultural nuances more than anything else anything stats else. and numbers will take you this far yes the cultural nuances are what are going to kind of leap you into Absolutely. ownership in that particular area in the work that you do 100 percent. and um you know and we've i have a very good example of a client we recently work with worked with um who's a south african client but working in nigeria and we're saying you know um you know they've had a couple of issues in nigeria and 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 almost talking to them and saying you know if you're going to work in nigeria your best point of call is to say, uh, forget about actually running the business. Have somebody else run the business. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking to management here. Have somebody else run the business. What you should be doing is taking people out for dinner. You need yeah. to find out whose daughter is getting married next week, <laughs> whose funeral it was last week, who's graduating. Did you get that show of me? Which one? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Because it's around yeah. those specific events yeah. where you can say, you know what, actually, we're having issues with this and this and that. And the person on the other end can say, don't worry about it. You've, we've got it taken care of. Uh, because you, now you want to so sit right. in your office and sit, send memos and emails and request and no meetings. Really that. And people just, you're just talking past people yeah. they're not even getting what you mean yeah. you know so it's it's about understanding that yeah yeah sure yeah no that is very true and it's such a great example with regards to nigeria because that's how, that's how you get business done how you it seems it. weird but it's exactly that's literally how it all works yeah. out there yeah so now um just with regards to your your firm and your work how far do you want to take it like when you imagine where the epitome of like okay we have arrived and i know that you're probably going to say i'll never arrive but yeah yeah but how far do you want to take it in terms of just you know with, uh, telling the african narrative and owning it should i say more than yeah. anything else i think look i mean i, th- I think that the uh you know uh, like you're right there's no ultimate um but what would make me happy um, is to make sure that, you know, we get to a place where we do fantastic work for our clients on the continent, mm-hmm. but that also we're able to get out of the continent and expand our reach mm-hmm. outside of the continent, mm-hmm. um, which would be fantastic. Um, we want to be considered a really great PR firm, mm-hmm. not a really great, not an African PR firm. Like that. We want to yeah. be a really great PR and communications mm. firm that just happens to be owned by Africans. Mm. And there's a difference in mm. that. And so that's what we're driving towards. Mm. And we also want to leave a legacy of um, education and upliftment for those who are coming, mm. you know, after us. We're not going to be doing this forever. Mm. Um, so, you know, training and making sure that, uh, you know, the legacy that we're setting is is then, you know, taken up by other people, mm. you know, those who come after us. That's really important to me as well. And who are some of your um, clients that you 
working with them was kind of like on your bucket list and it was a dream because I saw that you you were involved with the Forbes uh, mm-hmm. Women event that took place on mm-hmm. the 8th of March. I think you guys are going to Cape Verde Island. Yes, yeah. we're going to Cape Verde for the World Health Organization. They have a, the Africa Health Forum there yeah. uh, next week. Yeah. yeah. So which of, I mean, because these clients are just incredible. It's yeah. like, you're not like saying... You know, you're not dealing with rappers. <laughs> you yeah. like serious people. Sorry, yeah. no shade. Um, but, <laughs> but I mean, for you, what, which of the, of the clients that you've been working with uh, are like almost kind of like, okay, this shows it's what you guys are doing mm. is pivotal. Mm. So, I mean, it's difficult to talk about clients and like pick some and not pick yeah. others. Um, they're like some of our favorite clients. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, we love all of our clients. Yeah. I just think... Um, so we have uh, evolved over time to start working with a lot of multinationals, uh-huh. um, which has been interesting. So um, MTN is one of our clients, for yeah. example. So we've done incredible work with them and an amazing company to work with yeah. um, in terms of their vision, their understanding of the continent, their reach and all of that stuff. Um, but we, my heart uh, and even with multinational clients, I spend a lot of time on strategies that are social impact oriented. Mm. So a lot of the clients that I personally and everybody on the team will have a different answer to this question. But for me personally, is working with clients that are having serious social impact on the continent. Um, you know, so people like the One Campaign, for mm. example, and the work that Bono and his team are doing around the continent mm. in Nigeria and Senegal, land reform in Mali, um, in South Africa. Um, just really incredible work. You know, the World Health Organization is doing fantastic work. Um, I've done some great work with Barlow World um, recently around uh, perceptions and being able, and that's something that we're really passionate about as well, is how to measure shifts in perception. Mm. So a client is in a specific market, we put together a strategy. How do you come up with the tools to then measure that their reputation in that market has shifted from point A to point B? Mm. Um, So fascinating work in terms of perception audits and talking to people on the ground and getting some data um, to back up the work that Mm. we do. Um, so that's been a great experience with Barter World as well. Um, so yeah, I think those are kind of top line right now, but yeah. very much social impact driven sure. for me personally is mm. uh, clients that are, are doing work that are that is impacting uh, communities and mm. people's lives directly. Yeah. Um, love telling those stories. Yeah. yeah, sure. And then just getting the right team together because you you have a, I mean, just based on your upbringing and all the work that you have done and your passion points and speaking all the languages that you do, mm. you've got an added advantage, um, you know, when it comes to working within the continent, mm. definitely. And obviously the fact that you work really hard. I mean, you were up from three to seven <laughs> in the morning and then going to work. I was feeling guilty about my life. Um, but getting the right team team because mm. this is where sometimes with businesses within the continent or just in general let me say businesses can fail because sometimes it's like let me just get this person I know my cousin and mm. you know this and and this is where we sometimes have situations where something which is a great concept can kind of fail yes. but you've effectively managed to put together a really strong team yeah. so how what is your process and uh, you know how did you manage to do that so i think that i don't expect anything from anyone in terms of how high i stand uh, i i put my standards that I don't expect from myself. So mm. I'm really hard on myself mm. actually. And I think I, I am you know, I think my team would say that I'm hard on them too. <laughs> I hope they still love me. But I, I really am. Yeah. But I think also um, 
alignment of values is really important mm. when you when you're looking for people to help build a concept mm-hmm. uh, or an idea um is um you know I always go back to Simon Sinek's um uh little circle i don't know if you've seen this no, I haven't. Um, okay it's a it's a ted talk where he talks about how great brands and leaders lead and communicate okay. um i'll send it to you okay so essentially he talks about how most people how they communicate is you know this is what i do this is how i do it or, and by the way this is why i do it and he talks about how successful companies and leaders uh actually reverse the order of the information so you lead with why Mm -hmm. because that's at the core of everything that Mm -hmm. you do so you start with why and then you do your how and your what because most people know what they do and how they Mm -hmm. do it but most a lot of people don't know how to articulate why they do what they do and so even in interview processes that's kind of the formula that i follow as Mm -hmm. well like our why has Mm -hmm. to be aligned Mm -hmm. Everything else you can learn. I mean, you can learn how to write a press release, send it out. You can develop relationships with the media. That's technicalities for me. But if we are not aligned on the why Mm -hmm. um, around our passion for the continent, where we want to see it moving forward, and how we should tell our clients stories in a way that supports our why, Mm. um, as well as the client's why, Mm. then we can't work together. Mm -hmm. And so that's essentially kind of my vetting process. Yeah. I know I definitely want to be able to see that <laughs> TED talk. Um, and then just before we let you go, um, and I think you might be the person who can actually possibly articulate the story or articulate the answer, I think, maybe. So you know this whole conversation around jollof rice, right? Mm. And how it's oh just so overly passionate. Like people are so passionate so about it. So passionate. It's you know, such a problem. Yeah. Don't make me choose, by yeah. the way. Please I saw you were having <laughs> Nonya cooked you jollof rice. <laughs> I'll just say I love Nonye's jollof rice. Yeah. I won't make it into a Niger and Ghana uh, thing or, or Senegal, Senegal thing. Exactly. I refuse to go there. Yeah. I'll make enemies. So so I was speaking to a, a friend of mine and she um, she's Ghanaian but lives in Nigeria quite a lot. She, she works there. And she, she was saying that the thing about the jollof rice conversation is that it speaks to the identity of who the people are, mm. you know? And I thought to myself, there's, there's something in that in terms of how it is that we identify ourselves. Yes. What, do, why do you think, I mean, I've just never thought of the question until I was speaking to you, but why do you think it is that that jollof rice thing, people laugh about it, but mm. it's a legit serious thing. Yeah. It's no, like it's very like, serious. I mean, I'll give an example when I was in, um, in River State. Uh, we were on a plantation and the, you know, you have to go with security there, mm. like whatever. Yeah. So the secu- the guy who was driving us around and the security did not speak to me the entire time we're there. He, I would say hello. He just kept quiet. Yeah. I was just like, this is so weird. Like did not talk yeah. until after we had had lunch the one day. And then I kind of made an open joke about the, you know, when the minister had spoken about the jollof rice and he goes, he's a fool. Oh my goodness. Literally <laughs> the people who worked at the company, the everybody else around him, they said that they had not heard this guy speak. That's They're not, so he, hilarious. He literally, and and I just thought, and everybody started <laughs> laughing. They said this guy actually so does. He takes his job so seriously that he does not speak. Yeah. But I, I mean, and I thought to myself, there must be something in the identity mm. <laughs> of the food because yeah. you know, like, what do you think it is? Because that also speaks to cultural nuances. It does. Yeah, it does. Huge. I mean, food is like such a. <laughs> In, like important part of who we are as people and yeah. I think this one is across the board across <laughs> yeah. Africa right yeah. um, and I mean I, I remember growing up I don't know how it was in your household yeah. but like 
people were cooking literally all day. Yes. It's like yes. you finish one meal and, and they've already started one. preparing yeah. for the next. Like it was just endless yeah. food all the time. Yeah. So it's such an intrinsic part of how we communicate. We actually communicate through food. Mm. So food talks about who we are, what we care about. Mm -hmm. It's it's our sense of family, our sense of community. Mm. Don't mess with our food. Yeah. Like our food matters to yeah. us. And it goes beyond just filling our stomachs. Yeah. It's a whole ritual yeah. that speaks of identity. So I completely get the whole jollof rice yeah. um issue and i do get your point yes. that it speaks to so much more than just rice yes. cooked with different things it's just rice in guys. different ways it's like <laughs> seriously but uh but it speaks to more than that yeah. for sure yeah it yeah. reminds me of that there's a meme that came to my mind that says you're not jollof rice you can't make everybody happy no exactly exactly no yeah. I, I, actually i think i saw a t-shirt that said that yeah to get uh, my hands on it but what's your favorite my favorite uh, look i nigerian food or food in general like okay jo which jollof okay okay to be really honest and yeah. this is gonna i love Ghanaian jollof i'll tell you why okay because i feel as though it's like sometimes like with nigerian jollof it's like there's the spice and then the jollof do you know what i mean yeah, yeah. and in ghana i feel like i can taste the jollof and then the added condiments yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i just okay. like Ghanaian. i mean but i also like red red so yeah. i think maybe i just um i like the taste of Ghanaian food and then in general i prefer like matoke and stuff like that from east africa like that's okay. my thing okay so it could just be because it doesn't feel so dissimilar to what you know to what from what you have at home yeah okay that's very interesting so i've been talking to um my family one person in my family in particular who loves wache Yes, yes. And yes. Um, I love Ghanaian food too, by yeah. the way, and spent a lot of time in Ghana. Yeah. But Wache, I don't get. Yeah. What's going on with the spaghetti <laughs> and rice? Like, <laughs> I was like, why are you mixing? And this, I was arguing with like, my Ghanaian friends. You were trying friends. to be Western and African at the I'm same like, time. I'm like, why are we mixing so many things yeah, together, together, right? Yeah. So, yeah. but yes, also yeah. love Ghanaian food, Senegalese yeah. and, food. And Cote uh, Ivorian food, I love. So Cote d'Ivoire, if I had to move anywhere mm. outside yeah, of Joburg, I would move to Abidjan. Abidjan. Yeah. Love, yeah. love Abidjan. Yeah. The people, the food. I mean, I think that there's definitely a food contest between Cote d'Ivoire, Cameroon, mm. and I have to throw Congo in there. Just uh, for good just measure. Just because. Just for good so measure. So they don't call you but and they I'll say, <laughs> Mimi, you've already deserted us. <laughs> we yeah. have good food, though. Yeah. yeah. And so now, um, this year um, marks the 25th anniversary since the um, genocide in Rwanda. Uh, what are your thoughts around the way that that story has been covered and told um, well, specifically at the particular time that it was happening, what are your thoughts around it? Because if we look at what was happening concurrently, South Africa was getting into their democracy, mm. if you count it back exactly. Mm. Uh, so what are your thoughts around the way the Rwandan story was told then and how it's being told now? Mm. You know, great minds think alike, because I think about that often, actually. Mm. 1994, mm. uh, Rwandan family, I mean, I was raised by my mom mostly, so Rwandan family living in South Africa, experiencing on one end extreme joy and elation around the democratic elections in South Africa. On the other hand, we used to do things like community uh, activities and whatever to raise money to be able to send to Rwanda to <laughs> stop the genocide, right? Wow, yeah. So it was like a really interesting time. We're torn between the two. Like, do we 
laugh and are we happy because of what's happening in South Africa? Yes, we are. But mm. at the same time, like people are being slaughtered back home mm. um, and we feel helpless. And at mm. the time, I remember a bunch of my friends and even family, you know, volunteer to go to Rwanda and fight with Kagame to go and stop sure. the genocide. Yeah. You know, so it was a very interesting time. At the time, obviously, the uh, story around the genocide was... Uh, it was it was traumatizing, you know. I think it was it was I think it was disrespectful of what was happening. I think it was a lot of it was very inhumane. It was like, oh, look at these people; they're slaughtering themselves mm-hmm. amongst themselves, mm-hmm. you know. Very kind of offhanded, um, and so that was painful to watch, um, and also not within a historical context because the story doesn't live by itself; it lives within a so context, powerful. right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, my family, for example, left uh, Rwanda in the 1959 genocide. So nobody really talks about, about that, that yeah, genocide so and yeah. how it's led to the second genocide mm. and this, you know, the the dynamics of these two groups of people over, you know, a uh, couple mm. of decades. Mm. Um, so, and then you flip the coin and you look at it now and you think, wow, what an amazing communications exercise. I mean, obviously, the story of Rwanda, you go to Kigali now, you can't mm. recognize it. Yeah. I mean, it's changing at, at, a, at a pace that is unbelievable. Yeah. But the story that's followed, mm. um, and I have to say that I, I, I do admire the current administration in Rwanda for being able to rescue that story, mm. you know, to take ownership of it. I mean, mm. that's what we talk about when you say we're going to take ownership mm. of the story and we're going to tell it our way. Yeah. And that's exactly what they've done. Um, very clear on who they are, how they're molding their yeah. story. I mean, this is a country landlocked, which no doesn't actually have resources. the resources. Exactly. And that's <laughs> you know? what people don't. And I'm always I always say it's actually incredible what has been done it's when you incredible. consider all the factors, Absolutely. technically, nothing should be happening there. Technically, nothing should be happening in Rwanda. Yeah. But literally, and, and this is the power of communications, they've built a country based on a story yeah. that was told. Exactly. Of hope, of the capabilities of the people who've gone back to build the country, mm-hmm. etc. They told a story, and through the story, they've been able to gather the resources, support, etc., etc. Mm. That's the power of a story, sure. you know. Whereas on the flip side, mm. in South Africa, we face some challenges, and I think that the story of South Africa could actually be told a lot better. Definitely. Yeah. So I have two more questions. Mm. So because we've spoken about Rwanda, now when it comes to the DRC, uh, we interviewed Eddie Cardi uh, before, mm. and he he spoke um, he spoke so articulately in a way that I hadn't imagined, and I thought that I was so awake to what was going on Mm. where that was concerned and he said to me you need to realize my parents left the drc when it was zaire and then they were when the name changed Mm. that was an identity change it wasn't you know and when he described it like that i kind of thought that's literally like waking up and you have a different name Mm. you know for you the what do you feel about the whole change the zaire versus uh, the drc change that Mm. that name change and the identity of the people Mm. so what i've always felt about the drc and i feel like that about a lot of our african countries when there's a regime change or you know some sort of um shift in administration we're really guilty of not being able to carry through history so Mm. whoever's going to come in power is literally going to go out of their way to completely obliterate the history that's happened before them you don't have to like it 
but like preserve it, mm. right? So then now you move from Zaire to DRC and whoever comes in power says, you know, let's just forget about like not a single statue, not a single book, not a single anything like never about what happened mm. before me. And now let's move on to the next thing. And that is dangerous. That erases, there's a deliberate effort to erase identity, <laughs> you know, the identity of an entire people. Mm. And so... How do you then build from there when you've had no foundation? Because essentially it's as if you had no foundation at all and you are being asked to build from scratch, mm. you know, and, and that's sad. Sure. I mean, I sit with my that's father so now and I say to him, right, you know, mm. one of the things that, that um, has devastated me the most in my life is the fact that, um, you know, sorry to go back to Rwanda, but my grandmother uh, who's the only living grandmother that I had, uh, you know, passed away without me having sat down with her and had a conversation about what did you learn? 1959 genocide. Walk me through what happened. How did you get into the DRC? What happened there in the refugee camps in which you lived? You know, and then you moved on to this and you were able to raise seven children on your own. What were the challenges that you faced, etc.? I never had that conversation with her. Whereas in the family, I was best placed to have that conversation with her mm. because I'm a communicator. That's what you do. Why yeah. did I not document this? Mm. So I sit now with my father and I say, you know, you worked with Mobutu, you were this, you were that, etc. Please, before anything happens to you, can we sit down and write mm. your story? Let's just document it, yeah. even if it's not perfect, but let's keep it. Do Those not fall into this yeah. trap of erasing history. You're not, you're doing us such a disservice. Yeah, sure. And then my final question, um, which might be awkward based on an answer that you answered before. But when you think of the concept of an African state of mind, bearing in mind that it is a continent, mm -hmm. not a country, mm -hmm. how would you define that? Optimistic, mm -hmm. full of hope, mm -hmm. full of energy. Um, we're really, really um, breaking off the shackles of the past. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that gives me the most hope is that you hear less and less Africans blaming things like slavery, colonialism, etc. We started to intellectualize that conversation and say, this is this happened, these were the outcomes. Mm -hmm. But we're not emotionally attached to that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you know how they say um, a lot of us live emotionally in the past and we intellectualize the future sure. I almost feel like we're at the point in Africa now where we're actually intellectualizing our past and emotionalizing the future <laughs> which is where we need to be mm. we need to invest ourselves in the future and that's where we are it's so exciting Nicolene that's been an awesome conversation thank you, thank so, you so much, much for, for having me thank so you. good to see you yeah, again. you too oh yeah. my gosh that was so dope <laughs> and that is how the conversation with Mimi Kalinda group CEO and co-founder of Afri Communications Group went please remember to send us more suggestions of people you would like to hear from on the podcast like our Facebook page and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Live Podcast FM Google Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts also don't forget to leave a little bit of a review so that other people can also get to find out more about the podcast. Head to lifepodcasts.fm to find out more on the positive changes people are making on the continent in Africa State of Mind. Subscribe to this podcast at lifepodcasts.fm or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to a live podcast is free.